All right, we're in 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning. We're working our way through the book of 2 Peter, and, and, and chapter 2 is one of the more difficult chapters in the New Testament. It, it both contains some elements in it where it goes back to portions of the Old Testament. And I, and I, I'm going to pause just a second because we have people who graciously sat upstairs and who are moving down and, and taking seats here. I have to remember that during our transition now, because of space things, we're encouraging some people to sit upstairs at the beginning. So it's good of me to wait and be patient as folks come down. So thank you for those of you who sat up there. We appreciate it. In 2 Peter 2, you've got these Old Testament references that take some time to to understand what it is that Peter's conveying through them, what exactly they mean within the section. But what really stands out as we read through the chapter is the, the strength with which Peter denounces the false teachers. That really, the heart of this chapter is the Apostle Peter is holding nothing back in warning of God's judgment. Three times he uses the word destruction to speak of the fate of those who are teaching false doctrine. One of those references, just for an instance, is chapter 2, verse 12, where he compares the false teachers to wild animals, and he says this, These, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. That is powerful language. Peter says false teachers are like wild animals who viciously, instinctively hunt their prey, but who themselves will also be ultimately destroyed. The strong language that we're going to see that Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 2 can create a problem, not for God, but, but for us who are swimming in a culture where tolerance is held up to be one of the highest virtues that any person can have, to be tolerant of all things. And it is considered a most desirable of human traits to the point that the experts say tolerance should be part of education, just as much as reading, writing, and arithmetic. There was an article this past week, and I thought this was fascinating, mainly for what was used as an illustration. This was the United States Institute of Peace advocating for tolerance education in schools and the author gave one concrete example in the article of, of what this would look like. And, and I think this is quite interesting, particularly for us as believers. The U.S. Institute of Peace partnered with an organization in the Middle East to work in Iraq to encourage modifying the Islamic religious education of second graders to include within their religious education the story of a 7th century king who was a king over the area that is now Ethiopia. But what's striking about it is this is a Christian king, and the point is the king was, quote, known for providing generosity and refuge for Muslim pilgrims, serving as an example of religious coexistence. When lived out, biblical Christianity should be a model of generosity and refuge to people. It, it, it really is exciting to see that of all of the examples they could come up with, there's one of, of a believing Christian showing patience and kindness and compassion to other people, to people of different beliefs. At the same time, you come to passages like 2 Peter chapter 2, and the language sounds harsh, almost we would say intolerant, talking in a way that we don't 
often hear in 21st century Christianity. So I want to go ahead and I, want, I just want to read the whole chapter. because I think it's good that we just get the whole sense for what Peter says in this chapter. And then we'll go back through it and talk through different parts of it. But this is 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels... Though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. A speechless donkey spoke with him, uh, spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire." Tell us what you really think, Peter. You see what I mean, though? This is, this is not language that we as the church often sound like. And that's a problem because Peter didn't just do this on his own. He didn't just go off on this riff out of some sense of personal anger. Peter, this, this disdain he has for false teachers, he learned. And he learned it from Jesus 
That's where he heard it first. If you go back to, to Jesus as he confronts the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 18, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. And then some verses from Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I think you get the idea. Peter's indignation toward false teachers, towards these religious teachers who would intentionally lead people away from Christ, that indignation was learned from Jesus himself. We should have great patience and compassion toward those who are enslaved in sin and who are in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there is no such patience or compassion toward those who know better, toward those who have heard the truth, who have perhaps received sort of um, benefits, secondary sort of benefits from the truth by participating in some way in the body, and then have turned and twisted the gospel of Jesus Christ and have begun to lie and deceive by turning it away from people, by, by turning people toward false teaching. That's the message we're seeing this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. Really kind of two parts, not necessarily one section and then the other, but the two parts sort of in, intertwined throughout the chapter. The first part is this clear denunciation of the false teachers, this attitude that I think you and I are to learn from in how Peter sees these false teachers, this denunciation that comes secondly with a declaration about their faith. I'll sum up the denunciation this way with this sentence. Craving pleasure, they despise the Lord, deceiving others by boasting about their sin and enticing people with false pleasures. That's the message that is all over 2 Peter chapter 2. It's critical for us to see that very much as we studied when we looked at the book of 1 John, the greatest danger to the church in terms of false teaching is not that which is external to the church that clearly throws itself out as being atheistic or completely opposed to Jesus Christ that clearly states itself to be sort of an enemy of Christian doctrine. It is that which comes up from within the church, that which comes from people who once claimed to be aligned with the body of Christ or who still would try to put themselves under the banner of Christianity who teach things that are contrary to that which is true about Jesus Christ and his gospel. He starts this with this sort of unusual sounding statement in verse one about the false teachers. They spread destructive heresies and it says, even denying the master who bought them. Now that should sound very much like something that Pastor Stewart talked about when we were having the Lord's table about atonement. We, we would describe atonement as being the work of Christ in his sacrificial death that earned our salvation. The perfect son of God gives himself dying on the cross in our place. And as he does that, as the perfect sacrifice, the, the substitute for us, he bears the father's just wrath. And that then enables 
you and I as sinners separated from God to be able to be drawn near to him and to have a right relationship with him, to receive righteousness that is given to us so we can be right with God. So the trouble then when we get to 2 Peter chapter 2 and we're talking about denying the master who bought them is these are false teachers who are clearly facing God's judgment and they are facing destruction because of their sin. So what does Peter mean by denying the master who bought them? I think we get some help a little bit later in the chapter. If you look down again toward the end of the chapter when Peter's describing them in verse 20, he says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them to have to, for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then he gives the proverb about the dog returning to its vomit and the sow to the mire. What, what Peter's describing is what made these false teachers particularly dangerous and their form of teaching that much more insidious in the church is that by all appearances at one time, they, they seemed to truly be a part of the body. Uh, by some affiliation, some connection, some engagement with the body of Christ, they gave all of the appearances of being brothers. This is very much what John is writing about in 1 John 2.19 when he says, they went out from us because they were not, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. His point is, by their going out, they demonstrate it not actually being a part of the body of Christ in the first place. They, they demonstrate that what their connection was was superficial, that their participation was external, but that ultimately their hearts had not been transformed. So though they once seemed to be redeemed, they not only turned away from the truth, they are now, as he says, blaspheming it. They are reviling the very truths of who Jesus is and what he's done and the message of the gospel, they are now turning against that and reviling it, the very message they once claimed to have believed. And those actions revealed that in reality, despite what the appearance was, in reality, their nature was very much like that of an unclean animal when he describes dogs and pigs. Saying that's really what they were in their heart. Their heart was never transformed. The, the, the nature was always deception, and sin, but it was covered over with this veneer of participation in some way. And that remained the case and ultimately is proved out by the fact that they ultimately are denying the very Lord they once claimed to belong to. They are denying the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has said. But because they were have known to have once been part of the community, that makes them that much more deceptive. That's why in verse three, Peter says, they will exploit you with false words. They are in and, and, and they'll still show themselves amongst you and, and they, will, they will actually go after you and try to deceive you. Verse 13, they revel in their deceptions. Even as, they're, even as they're eating and fellowshipping with you, they are still involved in deceiving. Verse 14, in their insatiable greed, the false teachers, it says, entice unsteady souls. They're, they're actually targeting sort of looking for the weakest sheep in the flock, looking for the one who's, who's struggling in their walk with Christ, looking for the one who's, who's got questions and doubts and, and, and trying to go after unsteady souls and lure them away from the body. And what drives them? What's ultimately the motivation for this blaspheming of the truth? And he's very clear that it's, it's pleasure. They crave 
pleasure. Verse 2, he speaks of their sensuality. The, the idea of the word is lack of self-control, lack of self-restraint, desire to, to please the senses as being the priority, to, to, to do whatever it takes to get pleasure. Verse 3 says, they are greedy for it. In greed, they will exploit you with false words. That word for exploit in the Greek language was just a business term of transaction. They, they're not looking at this as concern for your soul and love of neighbor. They are looking at this as gaining followers, as, as, as doing whatever it takes to gain some advantage to bring you along in their pursuit of pleasure. Down in verses 12 through 14, we've read already 12 a couple of times, these animal-like instincts, this craving to get what they want, regardless of how wrong it is or how it might destroy other people. Some of the things he says in those verses, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained in greed. There is this compelling desire for self-gain, for self-pleasure. We know that in the first century that one of the philosophies that was prevalent and, and undergirded some of this thinking was that which came from Epicurus, who was about 300 years earlier. And, and, and Epicurus, we, all, we think of Epicurean, we tend to think of um, hedonistic, pleasure-oriented sort of philosophy, and it, it, it's evolved into that. Epicurus was more along the lines of living a life that doesn't suffer, that, that has as little pain as possible. And so, yes, pleasure, but he was more on the side of just how do you avoid pain at every possible turn. But Epicurus also denied providence, denied the idea of, of a God superintending history. Epicurus believed in the gods, but also believed the gods were the gods. Life on earth was something separate. And so what happened on earth was largely the result of what people did and chance. And, and, and so there was no sort of direction coming from the gods. And, and, and Epicurus certainly held to the idea that there is no afterlife or divine judgment to face. So live the best life you can now, the least amount of pain, because there's nothing after this. That philosophy had a clear impact on the false teaching that, that Peter's addressing here. Because if there's no concern for facing any kind of day of reckoning, for lack of a better term, after one dies, then live for the moment. Then, then do as you please and, and not consider that. Why should one strive for discipline, for self-control, for godliness, if ultimately you do as you please? And that's why it, we'll see it later on when, when he says they preach this message of freedom. You, you do what you want. And, and the sad thing about this is this is not first century isolated, you know, this kind of false teaching. This is the, still the common thread today. Some of the, 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 the greatest, the, the worst, I should say, greed that, that sort of tries to go underneath the banner of Christianity is false teachers whose chief message is your life should be full of good health and prosperity. You should have what you want. You, you shouldn't be sick. And if, if you're lacking any of those things, it's a lack of faith on your part because God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And, and, and that's commonly taught. It, turn on a lot of TV preaching these days, and, and that's what you will hear. And the implication is that's what God desires for you, and therefore if you don't have that, you're doing something wrong. There's a measure of faith that you need and probably a measure of giving that you need to give to that ministry to demonstrate that faith is somewhere where that goes. But that is not what Scripture teaches. 
Scripture repeatedly speaks of the fact that those who follow Jesus Christ can expect to experience suffering, but also that we are, we are enabled by the Spirit of God to be content in whatever place we are in in life. We are able to find contentment because we belong to Jesus Christ and our sins have been forgiven and we have a hope that goes far beyond this, this life. This is a, a, a season, this is a temporary, important time, but a short time. But it is a very deceptive message for those who are struggling and those who are hurting to come to them and say, I've got this wonderful life for you now and you can have it all by simply giving and having more faith. It's, a, it's an attractive message and very deceiving. And that's who the false teachers were in Peter's day and that's what continues to be the case today. They, they, they're not afraid to ultimately, by that kind of teaching, deny the truth of who Jesus Christ is, to mock God's truth, and certainly they have no fear of facing God's judgment one day, of standing before him when Jesus returns. Which is why, in chapter 3 we see this, they are especially known for claiming that, stop believing in the return of Jesus. There is no return of Jesus. You should just ignore that. That is a myth. Live for yourself, live for now, live for the moment. And, and the thing that Peter's concerned about is they're not just doing that for themselves. Their aim is to bring others along with them in their sin, to, to have followers who do the same thing. And so they speak enough religious sounding stuff to lure professing Christians into their utter foolishness and abandonment of the truth. One of the things Peter tries to do in this passage is to just say, listen, brothers and sisters, if you just Look at this objectively as people who understand the truth of God's word. You see that it's foolish. It, it, it's nonsense what they're doing. And, and so who does he use from the Old Testament but Balaam to, to make that point? Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but who was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Sort of Balaam, you might remember from Sunday school days, Numbers 22 through Numbers 24. He is a pagan who apparently has, at least is respected for some kind of magical ability, some ability to, to sort of cast curses. And he is hired by the king of Moab to place curses on the nation of Israel, um, stand over the, the tribes of Israel and curse them in some way. And so he's, he's viewed as having these special powers. Balaam is about... The money, sure, I'll come and I'll do that. If you're going to pay me, I will come and cast curses. And if you know the story that while Balaam is en route, God kindly uses his own donkey to, to speak his own God's voice through the donkey to, to say, you're a fool. What are you doing? Why do you continue to, to beat and drive this donkey in this direction when you are clearly wrong? And in fact, what happens is Balaam gets to the tribes of Israel and, and he is compelled by God to bless Israel rather than to curse, much to the dismay of the king of Moab. There's some effort when, when we first look at the story in Numbers to say, well, Balaam turns out to be not such a bad guy after all because he blesses Israel. But Peter is very clear here in chapter 2 to say, listen, just because Balaam spoke blessings under the command of God and did not curse Israel does not mean he walked in the ways of righteousness. God supernaturally worked through the donkey and through Balaam to, to bless Israel, but Balaam's ways were foolish. What, what Balaam was trying to do, and that, that, that's the point here in 2 in Peter, is that what the false teachers are doing, it's just like Balaam. It's utterly absurd 
When looked at it objectively as a believer in Jesus Christ, it is to stand before the God of the universe and to shake one's fist and say, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do your will. I, I don't have to be fearing you or thinking about the potential of judgment from you. I can do whatever I please. And that's why at the end of that section, he describes Balaam's activity as madness. This is utter madness. And so it is with the false teachers. You are, you are taking on the living God who gave you life and breath and seeking to deny him and revile his truth. And Peter's concern, again, is not just to confront the teachers, but to warn the brothers and sisters that you'll, you'll get lured into this stuff. If, if, if you don't guard yourself, if you don't know what's right and true, you can be lured by this. If you look again at verse 17, he says about the teaching of the false teachers, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. But see in this the, the, the nature of the, the false teacher's appeal. They present themselves as springs of water, of refreshment. First century culture, a spring is, is, is like a... Um, like a buffet for us. You know, when you walk into the restaurant, there's this glorious buffet spread out before you. Except he says, you go to the spring and there's nothing there. They're waterless springs. They're absolutely useless. And in fact, they speak with this arrogant confidence. They're, they're not just fools, but they're loud fools. And they're telling you that the way they live and the sin that they enjoy and the pleasures that they pursue, that you, you can have this. You, you should enjoy all of this too. And in fact, he says they claim to offer a message of freedom, which, which clearly tells us that the preaching of the false teachers is you follow Jesus Christ and it's like being a slave. You got to discipline yourself and you got to have self-control and you can't do all that we can do. We're preaching freedom. You can be all you want to be. You can follow your heart and you can pursue your pleasure and have all the freedom that you desire. Those kind of themes sound familiar to us today because Satan wants to do everything he can to lure believers into the idea that sin is not as costly as God says sin is. That Satan wants us to believe that we can live for self, we can live for pleasure, that righteousness is eh, maybe overrated, that we don't need to walk in righteousness and we can do so without consequence, that God's word is not absolute truth. And none of that is true. Jesus Christ is coming back. And the whole point of this series in 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter has been to say, how ought we to live now in light of the, the, the coming return of Jesus? How are we to live differently knowing that our Savior does live? He is risen and he is returning. That should be transforming for us. But we know from what Peter said in chapter one, what we read last week is there is still that susceptibility even amongst believers in Jesus Christ to drift. That's why Peter had said in chapter one, if I do anything from now till I die, I want to just keep repeating. I want to keep repeating these foundational truths because I want to keep calling you back to who Jesus is and what he's done. And I want you to put your hope fully in Christ. And I'm going to recite these things over and over again because that's where your life is, in Christ. And don't be lured by this teaching. This is harsh denunciation of the false teachers, but also this clear declaration 
of their fate. We see it first in verse 3. It's the first indication of their, their fate. He says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. The notion that God is idle in any way, that, that sinners don't have to be concerned about his judgment, is central to the teaching of the false teachers. When we get to chapter 3, one of the things he's going to say here is, not only is Jesus coming back, but in this interim, while we're waiting for Jesus to come back, and the false teachers are saying, oh, it's been so long, he's never coming back, you, you can do as you please, and they're mocking that. That's why Peter says, please, don't, don't confuse God's patience towards sinners with God being idle about judgment. This doesn't mean God is asleep to his wrath, that he's just put that to bed and said, not nah, anymore, we're not going to do that anymore, and just set that aside. He says, no, their, their, their judgment is not idle. Those who are under the condemnation of God will experience it with certainty. And, and to make his point, Peter cites instances from the Old Testament. This is for the, the folks that you deal with who say, well, that God of the Old Testament, you know, maybe he was a little bit more judgy than the God of the New Testament, right? Well, here's Peter in the New Testament saying, you know what? Those Old Testament stories have bearing on us. They have implications on us because that, that same God who judged in this way is the same God who will judge with certainty today. And so he uses these illustrations from chapter 2, uh, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Two of those illustrations, he gives three, two of those stories that he refers to in the Old Testament are, are pretty clear to us as, as readers of the Bible. Um, you've probably read, come across the flood in Noah's day, the flood that wipes out the ungodly and that Noah and seven others are preserved in the ark. And so we see God carrying out judgment. We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God destroys these cities because of their sin. Both are clear examples of God saying, I'm calling you to righteousness. You are called to be obedient and to follow God's law and to obey God's law. There's a warning that if you do not, there will be judgment. And then there is the carrying out of certain judgment for those who continue to rebel against him. It's the first one that's a little more curious in verse 4 when he describes angels who sinned and were not spared. The easy answer we'd like to say when he's talking about this is, well, we know that Prior to creation, that the existence of Satan, Satan is a, is a fallen angel. He was one who was created as an angel, and we see in Scripture that a third of the angels rebelled against God and, and disobeyed, and, and we, we would like to say, well, that's the easy description of what Peter has in mind here, but the problem is he's talking about angels who are now being imprisoned. Uh, they, they are already being judged and imprisoned in some way, so this is something different. It seems to be pointing to what was a, a common, in that day, a common Jewish interpretation of the sin that's recorded at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. If you're familiar with Genesis 6, prior to the flood, it talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men. And it says, the sons of God lusted after daughters of men and took them as wives and bore children. And the children are described as being very large and very strong. Genesis 6, 1 through 8 is a difficult passage. 
And it is subject to various interpretations as to who the sons of God and who the daughters of men are. Um, there are several good, viable interpretations. And if you're coming this morning saying, well, Doug's going to tell me what the correct answer is, at least from his mind, he's not. Um, I'm going to simply show you how it fits into here, and you can keep studying that passage. It is really hard from just the context of Genesis 6 to, to, to fully identify who these two groups are. However, Jewish writings in the, by the time of the first century and, and prior to that were widely um, taught, it was widely taught in those writings outside of the Old Testament that the sons of God were angels and that they were angels who lusted after women on earth and these angels took on bodily form, on the form of men or uh, in some way came into men and, and then married and had children. Before you completely reject that, it, it's, it's not totally unusual that we see angels taking the form of men. There, there's several references in scripture to that. There appears to be two angels who are with the Lord who come to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13 and who have a meal with Abraham and fellowship with Abraham. There's a reference in Judges 13 of an eyewitness account of a man of God who also has the appearance of being an angel. So you, you see the two kind of together. Hebrews 13, when it speaks of entertaining strangers, showing hospitality to strangers, as some have entertained angels unaware. So there's also the idea that some who look like men, women, could, could in some form be an angel in some way that, that's receiving hospitality. And, and Job chapter 1, verse 6, when it's describing Satan coming before um, God in, in heaven, also speaks of the sons of God. And it uses that term in a way that seems to speak of angels. And so if Jewish tradition is correct about Genesis 6, the point is then that there was lust by the angels that led to sexual sin, and they are then judged for that. And that's all I'm going to say about Genesis 6, so you can read that more. Or ask your home group leader if you want to really give them some fun. Um, no, don't do that. Be nice to your home group leader. Um, but the point that he does here is he says they are under judgment. God's judgment of them is certain. And that's how Peter is using this. That's ultimately the main point for all three accounts. The certainty of the righteous judgment of God. You, you may choose to revile God's truth. You may choose to doubt that God is a God of righteousness who punishes sin. You may choose to not fear God or bow to him. You may even convince yourself there is no future judgment where you would have to stand before God and be accountable for anything done in this life. But I would submit to you, let the record stand, that what the word of God says is God's judgment is certain. That, that God is not idle about it, he is not asleep about it, that if anything, what he is doing is being patient as he calls sinners to repent and to come to him, because ultimately, those who remain in rebellion against him will experience his wrath. They will experience his judgment. And Peter wants to be unmistakably clear that man's irrational, foolish, greed-centered, pleasure-seeking, mocking of God's truth is not going to go unchecked. There is a sure end to these things. And just as certain in this passage is he, not only that, that God will judge, but that God will rescue his people. And that's sort of the, the one thread that underlies that is encouraging to God's people in all of this, that not only must we denounce false teaching, but he's also using the Old Testament here to declare the certainty of our hope, 
those who belong to Christ. We have hope in him. And so in verse 5, he describes how God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. There's that preservation, that saving. And then he continues that theme into verse 7. And he says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. As, as you've gone through this passage and questions have come up, probably one more pops up right there when he just described righteous lot. When we are wanting to help someone see what righteousness looks like. We don't ordinarily go to the life of Lot and, and show them a picture of righteousness. If you read Lot's story in Genesis 19, there are some glaring sins. I'd give you two things to keep in mind as you think about his reference here to righteous Lot. And number one is, not one of us is inherently righteous. None of us is righteous on our own. Those who repent and who turn to Jesus Christ in faith and trust in him, we receive his righteousness. It's his right standing that is put on our account, that is imputed to us, as we say. And so we, we get the righteousness of Christ. And in that sense, we are all a lot like Lot. Lot's sin has been memorialized for us throughout all of time on the pages of Scripture. And I suspect that any of us, even as believers, if you took some of our worst moments and put them up on the screen for everybody to see, would probably not feel all that different from Lot at, at, at some point. One writer put it this way, and I think this is helpful. No person is proclaimed righteous apart from Christ, but all who are in him are declared righteous along with him. This is how Lot could be righteous even in the midst of his sin. So then, 2 Peter 2.7 is a testament to the audaciousness of the gospel. Peter could call a man with so many obvious flaws righteous lot because of the promise to Abraham. And if we are in Christ, then God has rescued us as well because he remembers his promise to Abraham. That's the first thing. The second thing I would just say to you is when Abraham appeals to God for the, the preservation of, of, of Sodom as he is asking God not to destroy he says, perhaps if there are 10 righteous men, perhaps you would not destroy Sodom for that. And, and what we come to find out is there are not 10 righteous man, uh, men. God did destroy Sodom, but God did preserve the one man who obeyed God's instructions, who when told that this is the path of rescue and salvation, if you will obey and you will follow, then you will be saved. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That for both Noah and Lot, there's a preview of the gospel. There is, a, there is a salvation, but it comes by grace through faith. It comes by trusting that the Lord has provided the means of salvation. And, and Lot does so even in the face, just like Noah did, even in the face of, of, of people who said, you're a fool. Why, why would we listen to you? His own sons-in-law would not flee with him because they, they, they thought it was ridiculous that anybody should, should flee like that because they didn't fear God's wrath. And Lot obeyed. The message for you and I is that God's rescue of his people is sure. If you have turned from your sin, you have repented, and you are putting your faith and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, like Noah, you are being preserved through the flood. Like Lot, you are being saved through the fire, and our rescue is even greater than that. 
because our rescue is a rescue from eternal judgment and the wrath of God. Our, our, our rescue is on the basis of the fact that Jesus is returning and there is coming a day of judgment for all of mankind when all will stand before the King of Kings and they will face him. And on that day, our hope when we stand before the King of Kings rests solely on this. We are trusting in the fact that the King, the righteous judge who could justly condemn us to hell has instead taken our punishment on himself. That he bore in his body, the judge did, the wrath that we deserve so that in him we might be saved. Amen? That's where our hope lies and that's what Peter's saying to the body of believers here is you must stand fast on what is true. The judge has already accomplished everything necessary for your atonement. Rest in him, trust in him, and be steadfast and don't be lured by the foolish fleeting pleasures that these false teachers are trying to entice you with. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, even as we've talked through Old Testament stories that are difficult concerning the angels and Lot, and we've had to think through some of these things, what, what is absolutely abundantly clear is that you are a saving, generous, gracious God who gave his own beloved son to die on the cross so that foolish rebels, people whose bent would be exactly the same as these false teachers apart from your grace, we all would be enticed by the pleasures of the world and, and defiling your truth. But by your grace, thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the hope that is in Christ. Thank you for the, the righteous judgment carried out in our Savior that by that we can be made at one with him and stand right before you. Lord, give to us a sense of righteous, properly shown indignation toward false teaching. Lord, cause us not to be compromisers or cowards when it comes to confronting that which is denying the truth of the gospel. Pray that you would guard our church in all of our ministries, Logos Academy, the men's and women's ministry, the youth ministry, children's ministry, all of the areas, our home groups, all of the places where we are holding out your truth. Would you hold us firm that we would stand fast in the immovable truths of your word? Would we, Lord, by your grace, be a church that would not compromise on these things, but that would call out that which is false teaching while at the same time showing compassion and mercy toward those who are in need of truth, that we would also in love show them our Savior Jesus Christ and urge them to repent and trust in him. Lord, thank you for the, the, the joy and the privilege of being able to worship our Savior Jesus Christ and the promise of his return. We anticipate with joy that day when our Savior is seen by all, we are able to enter his glorious presence. Lord, until that day, keep us faithful. Cause us to persevere in the truths of the gospel. Cause us to be a people who stand fast in your word. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.